And we simply need to wake up enough to ask the question, is that really true? Do I really need that? What do I really need to be a joyful instrument of peace and courage and um, justice? Waking up is huge. The world around us is changing faster than ever. We hear people say, everything's a blur. And when we're living in our little self, a self in survival mode, a self that's living out what others believe we should do or who we should be, we compromise our joy. We put limits on ourselves and how we show up day in and day out. We believe we all have a big self and pursuing it is holy work. We also believe that most of us let fear persuade us not to pay attention to it. So we stay in this vicious cycle between fear and entrapment that keeps us playing small. But when we combine an insatiable curiosity to know our true self with the courage to share our innate gifts with the world, we get closer and closer to our big self. We are honored to have the Reverend Ed Bacon joining the Big Self Show on today's episode. You are in for a real treat here. We have a rich conversation from everything from the secret power that comes from getting still to transforming your ego to building community into your life to even the second mountain. Hope you enjoy today's conversation. Reverend Ed Bacon, welcome to the Big Self Show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to have this conversation with you. Well, we're um, thrilled too. It's This is a, a real delight and we're honored to, to have you on. And of course, we uh, sort of rediscovered you about a year ago. You visited uh, our church, St. Timothy's Episcopal Church here on Signal Mountain. And we were really just struck by your message. We're like, this guy is good. And, <laughs> and, uh, and we were like, who's Ed Bacon? You know, as we checked it, we checked you out. And I was, we were like, Oh yeah. We remembered you from that, that super soul Sunday, yep. uh, Oprah interview and so not long after that, we checked out The Eight Habits of Love. And uh, I have, I mean, so that book's been, you know, it's got some legs. It's been around for 10 years now. Uh, and I really am looking forward to just a, you know, a little bit of a discussion around that book. Um, but before we get going in all of that, let's start off the way that we've been starting off for season five by asking our guest, Ed, to you, I guess I should say reverend, reverend to you, um, what does living in your big self mean to you? And um, I don't know what first comes to mind. And by any chance, I don't know if it maybe possibly connects to your theology of, of the blessedness of all humans. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I love this question. And it is a rich question, and it brings to mind three or four facets of what I consider to be 
a constituting middle of self. And uh, the first is my rootedness in Thomas Merton, who talked about the false self of the true self. So the big self, from your perspective, I would imagine, is totally resonant with Thomas Merton's true self. Mm-hmm. Now, when you get into Thomas Merton and unpack what he means by the false self and the true self, he's talking really about the egoic self and the divine self or the self that meets God and God's presence inside of us, the divine within. And when we are living out of that, as opposed to our false self or our egotistical self or our small self, then we are one with all of creation and with the divine spirit that moves through all creation. So that's the first thing that comes to my mind, Chad. Mm -hmm. The second thing that comes to my mind is a a, a phrase that I learned from Richard Rohr um, called big love. He signed off on an email to me once and uh, said, yours in big love. And all of a sudden, a blue light special just started spinning in my brain and my heart. And it was the beginning of an interim rectorate that I had at St. Luke's Atlanta, downtown Atlanta. And I started preaching it. It just clear to me that all of the sages of all of the religions are talking about this big love, which it can be distinguished from petty love or uh, what uh, Martin Luther King Jr. called emotional bosh. Um, to something that's really substantial and quite challenging and quite novel, and that is a, a big love that loves everyone, particularly loves the people with whom we disagree, loves those people we consider our enemies. Um, without being exclusively Christian, I do want to say, I think it's the love that Jesus talked about um, when he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that is the second thing that comes to my mind. So first is the big self being the true self. The second is the big self being based in big love, not petty love. Or um, And the third has to do with nature and what we are discovering from science about nature and what all of science is telling us now is that there's no such thing as the separate self. No one is separate from anyone else or any other part of creation, we function as a whole, W-H-O-L-E, ecosystem. So you can't have a self that is a separate self. All of us are an interconnected self, back to your idea of big self, And my friend Dan Siegel, his his latest book is named Intraconnected, a word he made up 
to say that we are all on the same team and everything we do is interconnected. Yes, but it's truly intraconnected because we're all one. So all of those things flooded into my mind when you asked the question, Chad. Wow, that that is uh, just beautiful, and we are in resonance with that. Um, now, so you just mentioned uh, the ego a couple of times, and so if you don't mind, let, I know you had that big, um, perhaps controversial statement that you said on the Oprah interview, where you you know you said the ego is like Satan, and I'm sure that that must have got some response. Um, and of course, Joseph Campbell says, right, we got to slay that dragon. He calls the ego the dragon. But do we also, the, the, doesn't the ego serve a bit of a purpose? Is it always that, are we always in that little self when we're in the ego? Or is the ego Satan? Do you still think that? And, and if so, how? When Oprah and I were having that conversation, mm -hmm. what I was referring to was making all of our decisions based on how it serves our ego. Mm. And I think that is Satan. Um, okay. But it's very important for you to complicate this issue the way you have, because it is important to have ego strength. I mean, it mm. is from our ego strength um, that we draw healthy boundaries that we put an end to someone else's bullying us, that we say to ourselves when we have been demeaned, no, 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 no. So it's, it is, I'm so glad you raised this, because you can oversimplify this business mm -hmm. about the ego and say that the ego is, is sinful or, or evil. It isn't. However, let me rush to say it in the very same breath that when you make all of your decisions based on whether it's going to serve your ego distinct from the entire ego, uh, eco, ecosystem, then that's evil. So yes, let's applaud ego strength. Yes, let's critique making all of our decisions based on our self-interests. Wow, I love that. I, I, I applaud that. That's a well, you know, succinct uh, response dealing with the, right. It's not so black and white. Um, you know, I guess while we're on that interview, it's um, you. You mentioned. Uh, if you want to live your dreams, you have to wake up. Why do we use the language of waking up when describing transformation? Yeah. Because our culture and many of our relationships count on us being asleep, count on us being unaware, count on us being unconscious. Take the issue of the divine self or the divine within. Jesus taught uh, how important it is to wake up to that. We have a prayer in the Episcopal prayer book that asks God to stir up our conscience. Our conscience 
can be asleep and not lead us to having a life that is a profile in in courage. Um, A lot of marketing in American commercialism counts on us not having a critical perspective. And we get sold a bunch of stuff that touts that we would be ushered into a new world or more exciting world and all that stuff. And we simply need to wake up enough to ask the question, is that really true? Do I really need that? What do I really need to be a joyful instrument of peace and courage and um, justice? So waking up is huge. And, you know, obviously in our listeners' minds, we're going to, they're going to be asking about the wokeism that is so much a part of the political debate now. Being woke, being waking up is really a, a mystical, contemplative, big self thing to do. Right. (laughs) And along the lines of your, you have eight habits and they are all, they're all interconnected and well, each and every one could be richly explored in a given conversation. For our audience, I wanted to focus on uh, the, the habit of stillness more and and perhaps touch on the habit of community and you know um speaking of the complacency of not waking up in that habit of stillness you know we're 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 familiar with the clichés of chill out and the eagle song take it easy and probably people who are in burnout and suffering from mental, psychological, emotional exhaustion are probably tired of hearing about how we need to meditate more. Um, but so first, could you just tell us what's the overall principle or virtue here with stillness that we should really honor in our own lives? How just could you tell share with us how you practice it and why it's important for you? So stillness is a superpower. Stillness, when we get to it, whether you do it daily or it's an accident and it just kind of comes upon you, it is a state of being. It is a state of the nervous system where you receive truths, instruction, ideas, strategies that are not available to the mind that's busy. Stillness is to be contrasted with the, to use a metaphor, the surface turmoil of your ocean. And when you Another metaphor for that state of being is the monkey mind. You close your mind, I close your eyes, and all of a sudden, 
bam, you've got a million things going on. The idea, going back to the ocean metaphor, is to go beneath the surface down to where it's quieter. But quiet is not the goal. <clears throat> quiet is a way station to the goal, which is stillness. So when you get to the bottom of your ocean, when you get to your ocean depth of happy rest, as one hymn puts it, that's when you, and, and this, is a, this is a mystical kind of non-cognitive thing I'm about to describe. Bring it. Okay. It is a place where you get refreshed, you get a divine or holy perspective. You pray for people that you otherwise wouldn't pray for, even if they are not on your prayer list or are on your prayer list. And you get ideas and instructions about the next steps to take. So Howard Thurman distinguished between the quiet and the stillness. And he said, you have to get down to the stillness in order to hear the sound of the genuine. And the sound of the genuine is your inner authority. And when you obey the sound of the genuine in your depths, then that frees you from being at the end of strings that other people are pulling. Now, I could go on and on and on. Um, I appreciate your saying that this book is 10 years old, and I'm amazed at how, how many groups are still forming around it, how it is um, pillow talk reading between lovers or partners. It, um, um, I just got a call to go to Jackson, Mississippi and spend a day talking about it. I think that stillness, and it's so appropriate that you started there, may be intuited as the key to the whole business mm. of living a life of love rather than fear. There is no fear in stillness. It's only love. And that's where I have heard the inaudible voice, which is another way I have of referring to God. So that's that. Um, I can talk about my practice. Uh, but I do want, before you, before you, invite me to do that yeah i do want to say that people different people get to stillness in different ways mm -hmm. i happen to meditate every morning other people get there by staring into space other people get there by uh, visiting the ocean uh the forest gardening swimming long distance running there's millions of people given millions of different ways to get stillness. So there's not one way. Uh, there's no room for um, a kind of literalism here. 
I gotcha. Uh, okay. Well, that actually was going to be my follow-up question was for the average person who hears this and may even be inspired by it, but nevertheless, it, we're having to share this message for a reason because <laughs> we are so distracted. We are even unconsciously, which really means we're not aware. I become more and more aware of what I'm not aware of. <laughs> And, uh, and I can, and sometimes I become aware of, I didn't know something was bothering me from the moment that I woke up. I don't know where it came from. And here I am just hopping around from little distraction to little distraction, knowing that I probably should take it easy (laughs) and try to go a little deeper. And, and I don't think everyone can necessarily on a regular basis, go for the run, go to the beach so on the regular basis, do you have any suggestions for just, I mean, what what if they start making themselves still as someone just, and they keep hearing the chatter? Yeah. And I struggle with that every time. So my practice is in the morning when I get up, I do the required things and get my cup of coffee. And uh, for me, I, I'm the morning person in our family and I feed the cats and um or else they'll interrupt my time of stillness. And then I have a prayer chair and I have a prayer cloth, not a prayer cloth, but it's it's a covering. It's not a quilt, but it's a little lightweight blanket. And Mm -hmm. um, take off my glasses, close my eyes and sit there. And I don't move until I get to that zone. And that zone is truly, Chad, this is a literal thing I'm saying. It is a biochemical change in my entire body, mind, and spirit. And it is so beautiful, so joyful, so calm, so loving, and so free of fear and attempt to control other people and willingness to have a very different day than I saw on my calendar the night before when I went to bed. (laughs) It is just amazing. It's life-giving. It's stunning. (laughs) It's gorgeous well it's i yeah i want some more of that you know um that that does sound wonderful and you know i think in the past 10 or 20 years with all the neurological study that we're able to do it just uh, does nothing but confirm and validate with empirical research what you're saying yes um so Staying with us, staying with like some of the beautiful takeaways of what stillness brings. And of course, we could, you could, um, you're open at any time to talk about the difference between fear and love, which I know you, um, you make a really strong case constantly um, between living between those two hemispheres. Um, my, my focus of, of, of attention here would be on the way that you say stillness opens up for you 
the learner's mindset. Because we do for, I think, you know, Carolyn Dweck um, about 10 years ago with the uh, growth mindset research that she did, we began to hear a lot about having a growth mindset. Um, of course, it goes all the way back to having a beginner's mind and with Buddhism, they they mentioned that. But yeah, and, and it, it does sound so wonderful to say, oh, don't have a fixed mind and think you know it all and be an authority. <laughs> have a learner's mindset. But this sounds like it. So and and I actually in your book, I believe you contrast it with that triangle of having a learner's mindset, a victim's mindset, or a persecutor's mindset. Could you could you talk about how it opens up that conduit of learning? Yeah. So you've introduced the world of um, psychology and also cognition. And this is deeper than psychology, and it's deeper than cognition. And also, you can't conjure it. You can't force it to happen to you, and you can't think your way into it. That's the beauty Mm. and the mystery of it. It is a gift, and you have to stay there many times, many mornings. I have thought, not every morning, but I many mornings I have a thought, well, this is not going to work today. I've got to get up. I've got things to do. And mostly out of commitment and habits, I stay there. And as long as I stay there, then it comes as a gift. The only thing I've done is stay there. But the gift of letting go all of the impediments all of the distractions, all of the thoughts and ideas that are in any way fear-based evaporate. They literally evaporate. And all of a sudden, I am feeling this, bio, what I call a biochemical change in my entire being. And it's just thrilling. <laughs> It's yeah. Just wonderful. And I guess it naturally perhaps seems to be free that that there's like a freedom there from the egoic oh yeah dictates. Okay. And and in a way so 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 we're not playing the game of the victim and the savior we're oh, just opening yes. up. Okay, so you you alluded to that. Um, yeah, I, I learned from a, a friend who had gone to um, a continuing education program with Betty Sue Flowers, who, interestingly enough, did an amazing book with Thomas Keating called True Heartedness or something like that. Anyway, this friend of mine brought back from this continuing education experience um, that When you tell your story as a victim, that's one story with a certain feel to it. If you tell your story as a victor, that's a completely different story. Both stories don't, to use your language, Chad, don't tell the story of the big self. 
It's not until you tell the story of yourself as a learner that you really get into this. Now, the DEI work that I'm trained in and do that once a quarter, even now, 25 years later, um, talks about the same kind of pyramid of um, the perpetrator and the person who has experienced oppression and then the learner. So um, it applies. My experience has been if I'm not grounded in stillness and trying to carry that stillness into my everyday relationships, then I'm not going to be able to get to the learner's mind or the beginner's mind. And, you know, I think we would be remiss not for all of the stillness to not at least mention community and practicing yeah. the habit of community. And within, within that section in your book, you talk about, um, you, you share with us the Thomas Merton mystical experience that he had um, that we could call the, the Louisville epiphany. Uh, could you share with us? So I think in general, the context that we're living in when it comes to community is that we're kind of going, especially post-pandemic, is like, wow, we need community. <laughs> and and we're like, we need it. And it's crumbling around us, <laughs> a lot of our infrastructure. But I'm not sure that a lot of people know what to really do about it in a meaningful way. I, I mean, I invite you to share with us that that Thomas Merton um, story. And I don't know if we can like make a connection there, but I just, I, I think where I'm going is just like, how do we find a community and how do we practice it? It's so interesting that you brought up the Louisville Epiphany. Um, I'm doing some experimental sermons this this, um, this summer. And um Last week, the what I'm doing is having printed out some excerpts from some um, essays or sermons that I would put into the Bible if it were up to me to add some 20, 20th and 21st century additions to the Bible. Mm. I would put these in. So... We've talked about Thurman and the sound of the genuine. His speech would be one of them. And this Sunday, I'm going to be talking about the Louisville Epiphany. And so I've got a handout with Merton's face on it and all that stuff. And Merton is my North Star. Um, Merton came into my life two years after he was um, electrocuted by stumbling on a faulty fan in Bangkok in 1968 when I was in law school and I began to read Merton and it helped me leave law school. Uh, talking, I, I got to a place of stillness and the, and the inaudible voice in effect led me out of law school that day in the middle of a final exam. So that's right. You Merton. share that in your book. Yeah. 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 Back to Merton. So Merton had one of these experiences. He was at the corner of fourth and Walnut which is now renamed Fourth and Muhammad Ali. And at Merton Square, there's a beautiful state sign there that describes it. 
he all of a sudden saw that absolutely everyone walking the sidewalks and driving cars through that intersection were, were he, to be really careful on my grammar there, that they were one and the same and that he loved every one of them. And if they could understand what was living in the very center of their being, which was the light, the divine, the holy, that, and that they are shining like the sun, that that would put an end to all war and oppression because we would be going around bowing to one another because we see the divine in everybody else. And that is the same divine that is in us. So as so many wise people have said, when you go down to your true self in yourself and there see the true self in somebody else and come up in them, you will come up in them and you will see that we are all one. So it is considered to be one of history's greatest spiritual revelations, this Louisville epiphany that Thomas Merton wrote about. It happened in 1958, came in and out in his journals after he had died, but he edited it a little bit and it came out in a book called Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander in 1964, four years before he died. And he, in that, refers to this kind of virgin point that's inside of us where nobody can hurt us. It is protected. It is the divine spot inside of each of us. And it is the place where we discover that we are all one. So community is, the prefix com, C-O-M, means with, and the root of it is unity. We are in unity with one another. So it absolutely destroys the notion of the separate self. The separate self, that kind of individualism, cannot be found in nature. Because the scientists say we are all wholes. We are so many events. We are so, so many subatomic beings inside each of us. And each one of those events is a, each subatomic particle is a whole, and it's within a whole of our body. And then we, as a whole of wholes, are in the whole of creation, so that all of us are in one W-H-O-L-E. And the key to healing is to become a whole maker <laughs> and to discover our wholeness. Now I'm quoting from Ilya Delio, who is one of our great contemporary theologians, who's taking Teilhard de Chardin's theology and expanding it for the 21st century. So I've said an awful lot. I'm sorry, 
I just flooded you with it's rich and it's I thank you for making those connections. And it's I think that that story will resonate. It's uh it has to do, I think, too, with you know, the foundation of your theology of the Imago Day and 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 how we are extensions of creation and of, of God. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but this is my oh, exactly. Um yeah. The the divine in us is in absolutely every other creature. Rocks, lizards, leaves, everything. In fact, the first chapter of the Gospel of John says, nothing that was made was made without that in every creature. It is the light that is in every person, and the darkness cannot put that light out. Now, before I forget, Chad, I've got to rush to tell you. So last year, I made a pilgrimage to this spot in Louisville. Hmm. And it's a, just a great place. And they called it Thomas Merton Square. And I thought that I would just go and immediately be zapped with a mystical experience. No. I saw all these people walking on the sidewalk. And I didn't feel them and experience them as me, as one. There were fat ones and ugly ones and homeless right. ones, suits and pearls. And, and I went, it was warm, and I went inside the lobby of the hotel there, and I just sat and had a conversation with myself. I said, you didn't have the mystical experience that Thomas Merton had here. What's going on? And it came to me as quickly as possible. Well, you're not still. So I sat there, Chad, until I got still. And then I went back outside to the corner of 4th and Walnut, now Muhammad Ali Boulevard. And all of a sudden, I saw everybody there as me. I'm surprised that you went there thinking you would have a mystical experience. (laughs) Well, see, that's the ego. Uh Right. That's, That's this petty ego. Well, I can make this happen because I'm I've, I'm arrived and I know Merton and 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 and, and that um, it has this ability to convert you. Well, no, you have to be open to it, mm-hmm. convert yeah. you. And once I did, then I think I experienced something that Thomas Merton had experienced there. But it's all about stillness and community. You know, as you pointed out so beautifully at the beginning of this conversation, all of these habits of love are interconnected. They really are. They are. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I, there's so many things, directions I want to go, but I, and I keep hitting you with one big question after another. This is my last question. I just, I, um, because part of our audience, we talk a lot about the second mountain. And now that I know you're familiar with Richard Rohr, I I trust you're familiar with falling upward, one of his better known ones and James Hollis, the middle passage, and maybe David Brooks is the second mountain. 
Um, a lot of people that we work with have kind of slayed that first mountain. They have done the things that culture says you should do, and they've done it well, right? And they've uh, they've succeeded. They've climbed the top of that mountain, and maybe they're kind of going down in the valley, and they're kind of wondering what next, but they're suspicious of or resistant to the whole idea of the second mountain, what would you say to them? If what can we say to help people realize sort of the sweetness of, of the second mountain or, or where that journey uh, promises to take us? I would say a number of things. I would try on different things until maybe, I scored with that person. Um, but one thing would be to just say, it is the second mountain or that Easter Sunday on the other side of Good Friday, that resurrected life, that new life is better than you could ever have imagined. Talk about a sense of purpose and energy and mission. It is stronger than the first mountain that let's talk, let's imagine that we're talking some, uh, with somebody who has had a, a success with the first mountain. What David Brooks calls the CB, the resume person versus right. the eulogy person. Um, I would also, well, what came to mind, I don't I don't know if I would use this on everybody, but a friend put when our daughter was pregnant with our first grandchild, this friend of mine said, no matter how wonderfully someone has described being a grandparent, the experience is even better, which is true. Um, the experience of life on the other side of that first half of life or the experience of the of the large self of the big self is so much richer than the small self the petty self the separate self the fear-based self the self of success based on willfulness the, the the self that is gift the self that is grace the self that is new life the self that is resurrection the self that is to use christian terms easter on the other side of good friday or um Roar does a really great job on the 11th step of the 12 steps in his 11th chapter, in the book, Breathing Underwater, is spirituality of the 12 steps. And the whole business of letting go and detaching from yourself, detaching from your small self, detaching from your willful self, detaching from your proud self, and letting all that go, and then open your hands 
to receive a gift that you could not imagine. I mean, Hope and I have been married 52 years. I could never imagine the richness of a life, of a marriage in the 52nd year versus the 50th year. Um, on and on and on. I mean, you're, you've touched something that's really important here, Chad, and that's the second mountain or the second half of life. Or, but, it, but it can happen anytime. It can happen when you're 15. It can happen when you're 75. So, um, okay. But for those who want to live a life of awareness <laughs> and being awake, then it's an ever-constant invitation. Sort of like even just entering the stillness, the gift of stillness. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Entering stillness this morning was different from all the other experiences I have entered stillness with. And here's where the ego gets to be something that we really need to criticize. And that is, I know what's going to happen. My dad used to tell me when I was a kid, over and over again, son, you don't, you have a lot to learn. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, dad. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. Oh, Ed Bacon, thank you so much for generously sharing these uh, just rich, really rich thoughts. I, I hope that this will, I'm sure it will resonate with our community. So just thank you for just offering your time. And um, uh, this is really helpful. So thank you. You're very welcome, Chad. Thank you for the time. And thank you for the very good questions. We are all about big ideas and how to integrate them to live a more sustainable life, to open up your learning, level up your self-awareness and consciousness, and move from surviving to thriving to flourishing. And I think what Ed Bacon is sharing with us is the inspiring and challenging depths we can get to on a regular basis if we're able to get still with ourselves. The wisdom, the ability to let go of our egoic fears and hold on to things that we say we value are all a part of the message and ideas he shares with us today. And you know where to find us at BigSelfSchool.com, where we offer one-to-one -one coaching, as well as trainings and workshops for organizations big and small. Here's to seeing you on our next episode of The Big Self Show.